2: Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Unfiltered, which I am properly excited and trepidatious about because Lord Alf Dubs, who came to this country on the transport after the Nazis invaded his native Czechoslovakia, is, well, for my money, one of the most inspiring political figures of our time. And yet you probably haven't come across him until relatively recently with his attempts to persuade government to show the same sort of compassion and charity to Syrian refugees, particularly children, that he was shown at the age of six when he was essentially spirited out of Prague in the dead of night. But you'll hear his story now. We'll begin, if we may, Lord Dubbs, at, at, at the beginning of your life. By the way, I'm Alf. Alf. I shall call you Alf, but I, I was waiting for the... Uh, I was waiting for the permission. That's a relief, Alf. Um, I've seen you speak before. I was at a recent Anne Frank Trust event where you you spoke of your story. And as as, as a middle-aged man today looking at politics in Britain and also in America and, and, and more broadly, I thought that the events you had to flee in 1932 almost belonged to... Not just a different era, but also a different species. It was. I couldn't. I've never until the last two or three years. I never quite understood, or believed. I realise that holocausts occur because of people who are
3: just like our modern day. Yes, I, I suppose that's right. Look, I was six when I when I when I left Prague. I was in the summer of 19, 1939. and I suppose the what was happening was so horrific and was so overwhelming in terms of the civilized values that were being swept away that, that, that I, I suppose I was too young really to understand that fully. Yes, It wasn't until some years later that it all hit me when, when I began to puzzle uh, about my past and, and why it had happened. At the time, I knew things that were significant were happening, but I didn't really understand the, the, the reasons for it. For example, in my school book... I had a picture of President Benish in my school book, yeah? Oh, yes. We all had to tear that out when the Germans occupied Prague in March 1939 and stick in a picture of Hitler. Now I can remember that very vividly there are other things I can't remember sure. but that was very very vivid in my consciousness that, that, that here was my school book where the president had to be removed and this other person had to have a had to, had to have his face in, in my school book. But it's a
2: curiosity when you're that age. It doesn't necessarily have a sinister subtext to a six-year-old boy.
3: I didn't see it as sinister. No. I saw it as something momentous. Yes, but, oh, okay, uh, yes. I, this is a big deal, but the, I don't the, know why. Well, it's stuck in my memory Clearly. Uh, as, as to w- w- why this would be happening. Uh, but no, I, there was nothing sinister uh, uh, about that as far as I knew at the age of six, no. But your father did. Your father fled to London the day... The, the day or the day after the Germans occupied well yes he'd said to his cousins uh, I learned later he'd said to his cousins look um, if the Nazis come I'm getting out and uh uh, they'd said they'll take their chance. And it, we discovered later that in 1942 the Gestapo came for them. One of them had a cyanide pill and her husband went to Auschwitz or, or vice versa. And so my father, who was not political, must have known something. I don't know what it is he knew because, unfortunately, he died within the year. Yes. So I never had a chance to ask him. I should always ask one's parents lots of questions. So that was rare, was it, for, for, for an adult
2: Jew, Jewish man in '39 to know... Quite so, to, to feel quite so urgently that he had to get out of there?
3: Well, I think so. I can tell you a, a little story though. earlier. My, after the Germans, uh, they, they were welcomed into Austria. My mother went from Prague uh, to, to see some friends in Vienna. And um, the story she told was that the, she said, tell me what's going on. They had a car. Mm. We didn't have a car. They had a car. <laughs> they drove her to the suburbs of Vienna, kept the car engine running, and told her what was happening. And this was in the autumn of 1938 right. or very early in 39, before the Nazis had occupied Prague. And if in those days when surveillance methods weren't like what they are now, uh, uh, if people were so worried about being overheard that they went out of the city centre in a car and kept the engine running so they wouldn't be overheard to, to tell my mother exactly what was going on. So people, I think, did know or some knew. And yet a lot of the Jews of central Europe seemed to, Await oh, their fate. Yes. It was a fatalism on, on the part of a lot of Jews. My father, as I said, wasn't political. I don't know what he knew, what he knew, but he got out. And so did you, although in, in circumstances that are
2: uh, almost impossible to believe, like most people of my generation, I, I first learnt of the transport during that episode. Of That's Life in 1988. I knew it as as something that we'd, we'd studied in school, but to think again of it involving real human beings and Nicholas Winton's astonishing work
3: i i, mean, I didn 't I knew I 'd come in a Kindertransport, of course, but i didn 't know about Nicholas Winton until about the time that, that it all broke on television isn 't is that right uh, and I uh, know and, and then I got to know him, and we became good friends. He was a great man, wonderful conversationalist uh, you know loved talking politics and stuff you know he was a great great companion and friend, and the thing is he kept his lucidity right to the end Did he? It was at his hundred and sixth birthday party. <laughs> That I felt he was, he was um, wobbling l- a bit. L- yeah. <laughs> well, physically, when he was about 101, I said, "Nicky, how are you?" He said, "I'm fine from the neck upwards." But but he was absolutely clear. His mind was clear as a bell. By the time he got 106, I think he was just uh, yes. just fading away a bit, and he died not long afterwards. Yes. But what a great man he was. And the thing about him is, I mean, naturally, those of us that came on a transport from Prague, we owe our lives to him. Yes. So, you know, when it's bound to be a bit attached to a person who saves one's life, that's, that's, a, that's <laughs> sort of human. But, but uh, he needn't have done it. You know, he stumbled on this situation in Prague in the autumn of '38. And then he, he was said, doing business there. He, he well, no, he, he was a stockbroker, and he went. He was going on a skiing holiday, and a friend of his said, "Come to Prague and see what's happening." Gosh. And he came over. And some of the the Germans had occupied the outer part of Prague after Munich, uh, the Sudetenland, and some uh, there were a lot of pro-Nazi people in the Sudetenland. But some of the Jews had fled to right. Prague, and Nicky Winton saw what was happening. And then, of course, when the Germans occupied Prague in in, in March 1939, even more so, and he could have walked away. A lot of people have said big problem, but not for me. And he said, I've got to do something about it, and just stayed there. (coughs) What a fantastic human being. It is, isn't it? It, It's a a mark, it's it's an extraordinary response. Uh, And personal danger involved for him as well, well, up to a point. Well, danger, he was, um, he had to battle with the British authorities to get permissions. The Nazis were very suspicious of him. It was a difficult, difficult time for him. There there, there was a spy who was watching him, a Nazi spy was watching him and so on, pretending to be a Swedish person. And and I think it was absolutely phenomenal what he did. For, for people who
2: aren't familiar with it, there were was, was 669 Czech-born yeah. children. Um, mainly Jewish. Mainly part, Jewish. I'm part Jewish, yeah. Sure. Taken out of... The country and and brought to Britain, where they were placed with families who had been established beforehand. There, there was a
3: well. It was a bit more, can I say a bit more? Calling that. Yes. First of all, because my father was here, those of us that had any family members would have gone to their family members. Yes. Nikki Winton had to organise that <laughs> everybody had somebody to go to, so it was either a relative, or. Uh, Foster parents. and this was because of political resistance to, to the refugees coming here, or, or? Uh, uh, well, I think I think he felt that the young children, you know, they couldn't just arrive at Liverpool Street and be be set adrift. We had oh. to have somewhere to live, you know. It was a, yeah. it was like a, so so he found uh, he found families, either relatives, or. Or other people who volunteered to look after refugee children, and so we arrived with our dog tags on Liverpool Station, and we all had to sit in the room. We all checked off and be allocated to either a family member or to a or to or to, or to a foster family. And and person. you
2: were, I know you lost him shortly afterwards, but you were reunited with your father he at di- Liverpool. He stage.
3: died within a within the year, but yeah, I was reunited with him. And you know, see what happened was my mother had tried to leave and was refused permission to leave, so she put me on kinder of transport and then. She, uh, it was quite a dramatic story. Uh, she went, I think it was the Gestapo headquarters or somewhere like that, to get an exit permit, and they said no, permission refused, and they threw her down the stairs, just pushed her down the stairs, and she landed in a heap at the bottom. And before she could work out whether anything was broken or damaged, she realised they'd thrown her passport, her check passport, after her, and that gave her hope. Yes, because without a passport, there's no chance of getting out. Sure, and uh, she then uh, managed. At the last minute, to fiddle an exit permit, uh, and she arrived in London the day before the war started. That's uh, the autumn. Uh, uh, sorry, the thirty-first of August. The Germany attacked Poland first of September. How, how did she explain to you what was going to happen? Do you remember? She told me. In, 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 in my father disappeared. Of course, yeah. I was puzzled as a six-year-old. My father just suddenly off the scene. Well, she said she she'd gone to England, I think, and then when it came to the Kindertransport departure. She waited till the summer holiday started, so it must have been the end of June, I think, and. Um uh, and she said, I, I she's going to put me on a train and I'm going to see my father. That, that's how she explained it to me. And that, in a way, made it easier than leaving into nothingness. Yes. So I always say I was much luckier. I should think about two-thirds of the transport children had no family member to go to, I'm guessing. Sure. Uh, and so I was luckier than most. And I'm always conscious of that, that I had a father to go to. The light at the end of the tunnel, as it were. As it was. And it was also... Hope on the journey. Yes, of course. It wasn't a journey into a limbo uh, yes. and nothingness. It was a journey where my mother had said you'd be all right because your father'll be waiting for you when you get to London. How, how much of the journey do you remember? Uh, I remember the departure. I can still, I can still. Was see your mum at the station? At, my mother at the station. I can still see it in my mind's eye. I can see my mother and a friend of hers the tomb standing there. Lots of parents, uh, German soldiers with swastikas on the platform, and and it was late at night, interminable waiting and waiting, and the train went off. And I was in compartment. I didn't know any of them. Mm. Um, I was one of the youngest, I think, on that train at the age of six. And uh, I remember a long, long journey. We were sitting on hard wooden seats. Well, as a six-year-old. You yeah. don't, don't mind that. <laughs> uh, and uh, all day, we crossed Germany, and German soldiers looked in. In some carriages, they'd apparently tipped the luggage out and so on. But they didn't in in my compartment. And then we got the Dutch border. and. Uh, it was dark by then. Long, slow journeys, and um, I, my mem- my memory of Holland was, uh, uh, was I was looking out for windmills and wooden shoes, neither of which I saw because it was dark. <laughs> uh, but the older ones cheered. Right now, the older ones cheered because they were out of reach of the Nazis. I knew this was significant, but I hadn't f- hadn't a clue as to why it was significant. I just knew it it mattered in some some way. So the, the fear wasn't part of your. No, experience, I, I don't then. think so. No, I, I don't think Curiosity, so. Curiosity, confusion. Confusion, I think. Well, what happened was my mum had packed her uh, some sandwiches for the journey. And when I got to, eventually, when I, my father saw my little knapsack, and he said, Well, you haven't touched your food the whole journey, apparently. I'd eaten nothing the whole 48 hours, uh, or virtually nothing. And, and so I must have been. Oh, it's fear. Yeah. What, whatever it was, it was something that uh, that stopped me feeling hungry. Or so I may have been anxious, but I don't remember being anxious. The symptom of something happening was was that I hadn't eaten anything. <laughs> yes, of course. And and your father
2: greeted you at the station. You're still not. How, how many years was it before you were aware of what a momentous event you'd been involved in i, I mean solely the kinder transport,
3: not not the... well well i i knew um I, I began to know when i was about 12 or 13 you know i began to puzzle about history and what had happened but it wasn't and then my mother told me i'd come on a kindertransport uh i mean she was of course very shocked when my father died and there she was Uh, in another country, no language, no money, no job, nothing. Where were you living at the time? Well, we were living in Northern Ireland, of all things. How did you end up there? Well, (laughs) a friend of my father's, who'd left the Central Europe before this, had got some money out and was given permission by the British government to set up a factory. And the British government said, you can go in an area of high unemployment, which is either Northern Ireland or Scotland. So this chap had found a factory in the middle of Northern Ireland and said, look, I've got this factory. If you ever escape, uh, you know, you can get a job there. So we moved to Northern Ireland. As soon as my mum arrived, we moved to Northern Ireland. And then within a few months, my father had a heart attack and died. So we stayed there for a couple of years. And um, then um, then my mother felt no, no money. She can't go sure. on doing this. You know, can't live on nothing. Uh, and uh, so we went to Manchester, where she had some fellow refugee friends. And she put me into a school run by the Czech government. The Czech government had a school for Czech refugee children, about two and in the middle of Wales. Not all Jewish, but a lot of them were Jewish. Yes. And that was the school I went to uh, while my mother lived in a sitter in, in Wally Range in Manchester. Good grief, really. Yeah. And you'd just go home in the holidays?
2: or yeah. yeah, or, yeah. And, and then I, I sort of have this... Curious mixture in my mind of of you being incredibly lucky and incredibly unlucky at the same oh, I time. I think I was
3: lucky. Yes, most, lot of, most a lot of people went through much worse experiences. Well, of than course, did. some some never saw their parents again from when the train pulled out to the station. Some only saw their, met their parents again who'd escaped. Some parents escaped by Shanghai, for heaven's sake, and all sorts of things. And some some were uh, you know had years of separation and so on. Uh, so, I, in, in a sense, I was I was lucky. And were you absolutely. conscious of that at that age? Did you feel fortunate? No, I don't think I felt anything about it. It's not it's not anything. Just an a kid, I, aren't you? you, I, you, you just carrying on you, with you, it. You, 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 you don't think about these things. <laughs> no, I guess you don't. You, you, know. you, you, you just don't. You you look. I had to learn English. Uh, as I said, I spoke Czech and German when I when, when I got to England. I, I I knew about three words of English, so I had to learn English. Uh, and my challenge you learning English pretty fast in a school playground of course and and also you 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 you're unfazed as a child you
2: take things in your stride in a way that perhaps you couldn't do as an adult I think so struggle more. I,
3: I was too young to be to be upset by all this yes uh, I, I think you just take things as, as they happen and, and get on with it I was very... I was absolutely shocked when my father died suddenly a heart attack of he course, died yes. within the day and that really was very very that was traumatic I yes. remember that yes uh, but um Beyond that, one isn't too phased by these things. No, at least what? I don't remember what I was phased. Now, what, what, what you know, what is at of seven, you know, how do I know what I felt? You don't know what normal is, either. I, I didn't you. know what I didn't know what feelings were at the age of seven. <laughs> I didn't. Nobody ever mentioned the word feelings no, to me in Czech or German or English. So you know, it, you know, I, I I don't know. What sort of schoolboy were you? Uh, nervous were you? I was nervous. Yes, I I was I was uh, well. I I felt. I suppose I was insecure somehow, uh, and uh, uh, well, I, I worked quite hard, and I was I was I was not too stupid, I think, at school. And I, what did what was interesting was once I learned English, I loved I loved reading, did you? and I would sit there reading and and and, and uh, uh, you know quite quietly when the teacher said you are all going to read for the next half hour, and 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 I I would just read, and and I loved that, and I got totally enthralled in books and things. So that that helped me to learn English, of course. Of it's course. quite quite good. And did you make friends easily? Yeah, fairly easily. Yes, I think so. Yes, yes, yes. I did. And the Czech government were running the school, but well, well I've been to several. I've been to so many schools, I've lost count of them. But, but 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 but, uh, but uh, I went to the school in Northern Ireland, actually, a primary right. school. But then then um, then uh, when we came to Manchester in the middle yes. of the war, this was. Um, then I was sent to the Czech school, where I had to learn. New lot of friends again. Yes, and you were being prepared not to return
2: to Czechoslovakia uh, th- as it was.
3: That wasn't certain. Right. Uh, the, the decision was going to be left open. Indeed, people didn't think about that. People were more concerned about the war being over and, you know, all that. How so- did the war impact on you in Wales? I mean, I, I
2: appreciate that you had to leave your mum in Manchester. There had been bombs there. but in
3: Well, um, <laughs> um, how did it impact on me? Well, uh, quite all the teachers were in the Czech army uniform. Right. yes. Uh, there was an RAF plane that crashed and all the crew were killed. Uh, about half a mile from the school, really. It was a it was a uh, uh, either a British bomber or a British um, Coast Guard plane. Anyway, anyway, right. it, it was very traumatic. It crashed on the hillside. We could see the the flames and so on. Just. Uh, but uh, but again, this you you've got no point well, of reference.
2: You've got no way of saying this is extraordinary. This is never. This didn't uh, happen in the last decade or the next decade no, or the decade no, before well, that. On, this is the only reality you uh, have.
3: Yeah, on the other hand, then I began thinking hard about uh, politics and what was going on. What uh, age is this then? I was <laughs> about eleven or twelve, I think. And why why do you think that? Well, came I, I, alive. You wanted to understand why these things were happening. Well, I, that happened when I was thirteen or fourteen. I right. think I really wanted to understand why what was happening, why what had happened to me had happened. Yes. You know, and why why it was that evil men in politics could do so much harm, and maybe politics could also work for the better. Right. But I was trying to understand it. So I was more interested in politics than, than than I think most people of my age would have been. And when you had the, the
2: you know the personification of evil that you're trying to unravel. When did you start discovering political figures that you could be inspired by or who could be positive role models? Well, around this time? as Well,
3: I'll tell you when. No, well, the moment, uh, my mum had a boss. My mum got it. My mum started scrubbing floors in a, in a, in a British restaurant. Uh, British restaurants were a chain of restaurants that were set up by the British government to be near the – most factories were war factories. And yes. There was no c- catering. So they set these restaurants – uh, so the little cafeterias and the workers in the war factories would go and have their midday meal there. Right. Yes. And my mum started scrubbing floors in one of these in Cheatham Hill in Manchester, and then gradually got a, got 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 a, got a bit of promotion. That's <laughs> that's uh, that's that's what happened. And that that gets her on the sort of on a
2: better economic footing. Where, where did you start? Where did you start finding polit- political figures that you uh, could look? Well, I will
3: tell you what it was. It was I, I think my mum had a boss who yeah. was a very keen Labour Party person, and somehow a little bit of that sort of. Filtered wafted, through. Filtered through to me. And then I remember the 1945 election. I'll tell you a story about that. Now, 1945, 3, 3, 12, I think I was then. Yes, them. yeah. And uh, my mum had taken me for a week's holiday to near Blackpool, St. Anne's. Lidham, yes. And in, in, uh, in the 45 election, because a lot of the British troops were in the Far East, uh, their ballot papers had to be sent back. So there was a long gap between the, the voting in England and, uh, and the counting of the votes while the soldiers' votes were shipped back. So, uh, so, and, of course, no television those days. Yeah. So uh, in the center of the square, the BBC were going to announce uh, the, 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 the election, uh, election results starting at, as, as they began counting at nine in the morning. And the people in the boarding house, uh, I said, I go along and listen to the results. Because I'd watched all the posters in the election campaign. I knew all the candidates in Manchester, all that sort of stuff. You know, things like Captain so-and-so will address voters uh, <laughs> on his return from the Western Front. It was Gosh, all that sort yes. of stuff. Anyway, so I got there, and the, the lunchtime score uh, lunchtime it was something like Labour 120, Conservative 30. So I went back to the boarding house and said, what is it? And I, and I said very proudly, I was Labour then, uh, <laughs> Labour 120, Conservative 30. And I remember voicing... Oh my God! It's the end of England. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's stuck stuck in my memory. Oh my God! It's the end of England. Yes, so, so anyway, so then of course I had all the excitement of 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 the, of of the Attlee government and all all the things that happened. Why Alf? Why did you? Why why were you Labour?
2: Why? And I appreciate your mum's boss had had an influence on you, but what did they represent to you? Because for, for a lot of people who are who are who weren't around in '45? The idea that Churchill could win a war and then lose an election is still quite hard to understand.
3: Yeah, I suppose it was. Really, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would just it just seemed right what they were saying and so on. And uh, different Britain and and a uh, bit of public ownership and things yes, like so, that. Yes, So the idea of, yeah. of drawing away from. A, 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 a small minority of wealthy people. And but, just... I mean, I, I can't analyse in any much detail. You know, I was a bit young for. No, I know you were. But it's right. still, but not many twelve-year-olds identify as Labour uh, through and through. Well, right. well, I, well, I did. Well, I did. Then I was, you know, I, as I said, when they said to me, "Oh my God, it's the end of England," I thought I was right. <laughs> and, and, and then I tell you another thing that happened though. hr I, I, I was. I was then. Uh, well, I'm jump, jumping ahead a bit, but I was in hospital the day the National Health Service started. Right. I, I had an ear infection. I was in. Stockport or an infirmary. And uh, I, was, I was quite ill, but I was the only child in adult ward. I was 14 or something. Yeah. Anyway, and in those days, when the consultant did his week, daily round, if you were well enough, you had to stand to attention. If you were in bed, you had to lie to attention. It was really? very, for- very very formalized, you know. You, you, and you didn't really speak unless you spoke to him. Anyway, he looked at me and walked. And I said, just a minute. I've got a question to ask you. <laughs> uh, I said, when are we having a party? <laughs> So he said, he said, What for? I said, Well, the hospital's ours today. Oh, wow. And I, I uh, anyway, he walked away but bit sniffily with yes. his entourage of Maton and junior doctors. And the other people said, What's going on there? And I said, Well, the hospital's ours. is a great day. You were across it. Anyway, so I remember this was one of my first political stands. <laughs> so I, well, you know, it was. And after all, even today, that was the most significant thing in British history. Absolutely. Setting up the National Health Service. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and yet, there was resistance from, from the medical profession, wasn't there, yeah. within. Within the health service,
2: the doctor who was sniffy with you would not have been exceptional by any stretch yeah, of the imagination. Yeah,
3: I think that's right. And I, I remember I followed you know, Nye Bevan, who was uh, the, the Minister of the Labour Government yeah. and Pioneer of the health service. I listened to some of the stuff on on the radio and what he was saying, or in, in the newsreels and cinemas and so on. I've jumped ahead a bit of you, but, but don't, don't but, worry. Don't The but way this, it works. But we this, can, was, this was this was jump it's just one, one one of those moments that I can still see myself lying there and the consultant walking away, and and, and I felt well, I'd done the right thing. <laughs> But that that's what I'm intrigued by. That's what I'm trying
2: to pin you down on, on on, on this kind of uh, dawning, a, a political consciousness that you developed. And I, I don't want to use highfalutin descriptions of it, but it, but you were young. You could have been forgiven for focusing entirely upon your own survival and your mother, you, you know, looking after number one, given that you'd had to... <laughs> but it, it, essentially, and what I was hoping to coax you into saying when I asked you why you became a labour man, is what I'm hearing is a notion of fellow
3: feeling, a notion of... Of community, I suppose so. Look, you asked me to analyse motives, which I probably wasn't aware of at the time. Yes, uh, I, I am. And I, I, I well, I could sound I could sound all uh, far-sighted and wise, and all, well beyond my years. You know, I could but, but you must have had a notion of what appealed to you. Well, what what appealed to me, I'm trying to think back without filtering it through I, the that, passage of time. Of course, uh, I I think there were things that the Labour Party was saying about uh, taking over the key industries. Yes. Uh, and and Britain had shared things during the war and we wanted to go on having that sort of spirit, spirit in the community, and that we could change the country for the better. I think there were things like that. Yeah, this was what you were like picking that. up I think I was picking it up. And, you know, maybe if I'd met somebody who was a, a passionate conservative, they, they could have argued with me. I'd have lost the argument. I wasn't good enough at arguing. But... Um, uh, I think I think that's I think that's what that's what I felt at the time, and I was well, well I must have been because I was so proud when I when I read the lunchtime election results you know in that boarding yes. house near Blackpool yes you know and the way things so and you
2: understood what the the founding of the NHS meant even in relatively simple terms, yeah. you understood this was an enormous, an enormous and almost, for, for someone my age, it's almost impossible to imagine yeah. a project of that scale and yeah. scope uh, being I'm, realised.
3: Absolutely and of course I didn't realise the scale and scope. What I knew no. was a hospital was ours and we had a health service. See, my, I'd seen on the newsreels, because no television, on newsreels, I'd seen the miners a year and a half earlier celebrating the, the mines National Coal Board being set up and the mines, and I had, and they had a party, and it was that sense of they mine of having a party at the pitheads when the mines became British nationalised that, that that I wanted to translate that in, into into the health service. But there was a sort of a wave of keenness and enthusiasm in the country about these things. Yes. I remember my mum, my mum had then moved to Blackburn, and we we'd been in London to see her, to some friends. And we were telling back on New Year's Eve, and we had to change trains in Preston to get to, go to Blackburn. And it was an—I forget which year it was. It was a—the railways were being nationalized the following morning. Right. That There was snow. It was bitterly cold. The waiting room didn't have any heating. It was uh, completely awful. And we're sitting in this waiting room, waiting plain to, pain, painfully sl- for this train to come to come and take us from Preston to Blackburn. Uh, and, um, and we're sitting there saying, isn't it awful, and so on. And then— Somebody said, oh, they're being nationalised tomorrow. And somebody said, oh, right, and from tomorrow we can blame the government for all this. <laughs> <And I> thought, <laughs> Very prescient. <laughs> absolutely. So I thought, you know, there it was. So these were all, this was all the mood of the time. Yes, clearly. And did you ever have your party? The, in the, in hospital. the hospital? No, no, no. Out. Well, I was a bit too ill for that. You're clearly. <laughs> clearly. It, it was, um,
2: and, then, and then we come to the question of, of when you began to feel or, or believe that this could actually be that politics could be your work, politics could be your job, or well, at least you could make a contribution to politics.
3: Well, I tell you what it was. I, I was by then I was passionate in, in politics and labour politics and all that, and I follow what was going on. And um, I, but I always felt with my background I couldn't really. This was because part, you were foreign, or foreign just born, I or didn't have the background. Yeah, because I was foreign and all this sort of stuff. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I just didn't feel I had no political background in my family. There was nobody to sort of argue with or talk about. Many of the eminent Labour people have always had in their childhood. They had good discussions yes, around the kitchen table and so on. They you never had that? So no, no, no. You, no you didn't thought. sharpen your blades on anyone? No, know. I didn't have
2: any sharpening, So it was, a, no. it was a sort of autodidactic then? You were teaching yourself? Uh, you
3: were... Well, that's right. And 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 um, uh, uh, and, and so, so, you know, I, 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 I got interested. And then a friend of mine who was an MP, I got to know an MP through the local Labour Party, and he right. said, um, you should have a go. And I said, I can't he said, you should have a go. Anyway, I began meeting some MPs. I know it sound awful because I have a lot of respect for MPs. Well, there's a big but coming, isn't but there? The big but is uh, <laughs> I said, well, if these people can become MPs, anybody can. And, yes, and, well, that's the best way to arrive at those. It's you know, actually quite modest. Since, anyway, I, then, I, then, uh, I actually then stood stood for Parliament. Up to then, I'd always thought my height of my ambition would be to get on a local council. Right. But anyway, I stood for Parliament in the cities of London and Westminster. And uh, this was in the 1970 election. Right. Now, it was a pretty safe Tory seat. Yes. And the Tory uh, candidate was Christopher Tuggenhart, and there was I, the Labour candidate, and there was this constituency in the heart of London, Yes. heart of the empire, as it was then. And uh, I thought to myself, here's a refugee from Vienna competing with a refugee from Prague. And the media never picked it up. Did they not? They did not pick it up, no. How would they have reported that in 1970? Mm -hmm. Oh, they said two refugees battling for the heart of but I don't know oh, how but they... would
2: it would have been it would have had a positive glow would it, would it, would it have been
3: a, a source of pride? Well, it could at least have been a diary item just would saying you know. just, <laughs> I'm not questioning the news value of the story. I'm wondering about the mood of the time because we'll move on briefly I don't, the answer is I don't know how they, how they would have dealt with it. Look, I never made anything of my background at right. all. I neither denied it nor talked uh, uh, I didn't hide it nor, nor did yeah. I uh, trumpet it nothing. Yes, uh, because I just thought it's one of those things and I you know that's not anything did you important. encounter prejudice did you encounter my mother did, she did her accents and so on yes she did yes yes and would it be anti-semitic or would it just be xenophobic? I don't know. Uh, she applied for a job um, uh, her boss left she she acted up um, uh, they advertised the job she applied, she was turned down, wasn't filled. she acted up for another six months, applied for the job again. Uh, having acted up, uh, she was turned down again and she heard somebody say, we're not giving a job to that bloody foreigner. Right. Uh, no, she had a very strong, um, you know, Central European accent yes. and all that sort of stuff, but she was absolutely mortified, you know. Well, I'm sure. And, and when she told you that, by by now you, you knew what yeah, feelings yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. were. Yeah, by yeah. now you had yeah, feelings. Yeah, you, yeah. You, of course I did, yes. How did you feel? Well, I felt incredibly upset for her because I realised, you know, there she was battling... You know, mm. on her own, trying to look after me, yes. and I felt very defensive about her, and I suppose that experience made me both supportive of the ambitions—not the ambitions—support made me supportive of women in getting on in in, in the world, getting equal pay, mm. and also made me very critical of discrimination and prejudice. Yep. I think that was quite a quite a, um, a notable. Event that happens. Yes, I can imagine to, to her detriment, of course, very much to her detriment. But um, formative, isn't it? it I think. It, I think it had an influence on me. Yes, it yes. Did. Um you, you, I have to put this delicately. You, you, you
2: lost. Um, Obviously, in 1970.
3: Oh yeah, but then I became a local councillor. Yes, uh, uh, in Paddington. That was interesting. I loved being a local councillor. Of course, we were outnumbered by the Conservatives, but Westminster had a very sort of um, one-nation conservative regime. Mm. So it was actually they they went too hard hard with us. And I made some good friends. You know, it was a very collegiate thing in the Labour group, and we had some good friends. There was one issue which divided us, and that was when the Uganda Nations came. And the government asked all local authorities to take Ugandans, And we had a very, very angry debate in the Labour Group, and really? the Tories had one as well. And in the end, Westminster became the first council to give so, so many council houses to um, to Ugandans. The argument against us in the Labour Group was... Was uh, so my friends and colleagues said, you know, you are denying housing opportunities for even longer to working class people who who deserve better housing, and that was a very painful decision to have to make at the time. Of course,
2: well, by this point, then you would have, put, you would have listed refugees on your areas of particular yeah, uh, political interest. Refugees
3: and, and and yeah, and and
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better. Well.
3: discrimination and so on. Yes, I was actually chair of the, the local community relations council in Paddington, the Westminster community relations council. So we're trying to you know do positive let's, things. Let, let's step back a bit then and and sort of look at, at, at an overview because I, I think a
2: lot of people are very depressed at the moment about the toxicity that we've displayed as a country or that our media whips up against refugees. Um, in a sense, the notion that it was ever thus could be quite reassuring mm. because it says to me that <laughs> I don't mm. live in particularly horrible times. It, it, it was the same in the 70s. It will be the same 50 years from hence. But mm. if if I, like you, had spent much of my life battling on these fields, mm. I think I'd be very um, dismayed to wonder whether progress, meaningful progress within our population has been made since the Ugandan Asians arrived, moving forward to your attempts to bring more Syrian children
3: here. Uh, uh, there were a number of things that happened both with the Ugandans and later, which didn't provoke the outcry which refugees provoke today. Oh, no. Um, I didn't want to hear that. Well, <laughs> you know, because we also, I, I then, at one point in my life, I, I was chief executive of the Refugee Council. Yes, I know. And we were asked to facilitate several thousand Bosnians from the Serb, the horrible Serb concentration camps, I call them, mm. and help them, help them uh, you know, come to Britain. And I don't think there was that outcry. Uh, no, there wasn't. I had to in my spare room as a student. Well, actually. well, uh, we we, we organised, we had to work our socks off. I mean, there were some stupid things and nasty things that happened, unhelpful Absolutely. things that happened from some local authorities. But um, but on the whole, we, we together with the Red Cross organised reception facilities and so on. And there wasn't the kai either then or, or we, there was some kai then. I, th- I think... It's the early 90s now, isn't it? It's, it's um, 19- the, 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 the Bosnians were the early 90s, the, 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 the Bangladesh... Uh, the, the, um, the Uganda Asians. Oh, I did. That was a previous we in the we in the seventies.
2: Why do you think that is? Then, because we're, we're going to talk about the Dubs Amendment and your more recent political attempts. But just briefly, as an overview, wh- wh- why do you think the reaction to the Syrian refugee crisis was morally worse than the reaction to the
3: Bosnian one? I think, uh, I think people at the moment, also mix up immigration with refugees. Yes. And the argument for refugees... I'm not saying there's anything unworthy about being a migrant, uh, but the argument for refugees is that people are fleeing for safety from the threat of war, war, persecution, torture, imprisonment, and so on. These are people who are escaping a terrible fate in the countries from which they've fled. And I think up to a point... British public opinion understood that. Right. And then we've had more people come into the country over the years who are not refugees. And there's been a sort of sense that um, this is, this has got a bit out of hand among yes. some people. Now, I regret that. A deliberately provoked sense. Yeah, yeah like but that. that sense is more marked in the areas where there aren't any black faces than in the areas where there are black faces. So, uh, you the know... fear not, of the, the, the horde over the hill, right. isn't it? That's, that's be... right. But, but I think that fear through the politics of it, has come higher up. Uh, and so people are now more resistant. But having said that, and we're come on to child refugees, I still yes. believe that essentially British public opinion supports the idea of child refugees. Yes. And the argument is that they know what these people, young people, have suffered and the dangers are in, and it's similar to the dangers of the older Uganda nations who were being persecuted or the or the Bosnians who came and so on. So I, I think British, British public opinion is, is being buffeted in different directions. It is. But, but you know, if, we, if I, I don't jump ahead of you too much, but I mean, if you look at jump some, you some want. of the things that were said during the referendum campaign, yeah. I mean, they were shocking. They were lies and they were absolutely shocking. And what they did was they poisoned the atmosphere in our country. And I'd felt before that, that things were getting better that I hoped the argument for child refugees would spread over into more sympathy for all refugees and there wouldn't be this hostility to to migration. And the one quote I can give you, during the referendum campaign, I knocked on massive doors, I worked very hard, I, although I say so myself. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, and and uh, and uh, other people talk about what they did. I actually, I actually did it anyway. Yeah. By yeah. Way, and, and this woman said uh, she's she's going to vote leave because of immigration. Mm. And I said, listen, I had a small procedure in hospital, and everybody just obviously in after the day, and everybody, doctors, nurses, they're, they're all immigrants. Yes. And she said to me. Ah, it's not the ones that are here that bother me. That's fine. It's some further ones that are going to come. And the way the atmosphere has been poisoned in this country is by certain politicians who, in the referendum campaign and elsewhere, have said there's a big threat of these extra people coming. I mean, our foreign Boris Johnson, said 70 million Turks were poised to enter Britain mm. if, we, if we stayed in the complete. Fabrication, a complete fabrication from a man with a Turkish grandfather. Yeah, but it's a complete. Yeah, exactly. But a complete fabrication. But it was that, and the UKIP posters were the people, yes. and that inculcated fear in people. And it's those sort of things that have poisoned the atmosphere. Now there was a bit of that before the referendum of campaign, of course. But it's the general politics of saying we've got to keep the numbers down and so on uh, that, that have all had an adverse effect on the way the public see these things. And, and yeah, and we'll move. Back to
2: that in a minute, but to leap back to, to the, the <coughs> expulsion of the Ugandan Asians, your colleagues who argued that it would make the housing waiting list longer for British people. And, and the conservative compadres who did the same,
3: they were right. I mean, that, that that's part of the problem as well. Well, which... it's definitely it's you can't challenge that. Yes, if we've only got so and so many council houses in those days, we were still building council houses. <laughs> if we've we got so and so many council houses, you know, and, and we gave the top 20 or 30 on the uh places, to, not to people on the waiting list, but people who just arrived, exactly. of course. And I think it was a very, very painful decision. I voted in favor of doing it. But I think it was one of the most painful decisions in which I've been involved because I could see the force of the argument the other way. And I could see the unfairness of whatever happened. It was unfairness on either side of the argument.
2: And that distinction between refugee and and migrant then becomes absolutely crucial because you could only really persuade yourself or someone else that their need is greater yeah. if if it's against the context of what they're fleeing yeah. so what that's happened in the referendum were the attempts to minimize what they were fleeing
3: from and to almost demonize the people who were running uh, absolutely. away absolutely and, and that, that was the awful thing about the referendum and that's the awful thing about public opinion now as i said there's nothing unworthy about being an economic migrant and i think as a country we've benefited from the people coming from the eu to this country I mean, yes. a lot of jobs wouldn't wouldn't be filled and we have benefited enormously But But in terms of the warmth of the welcome that should be offered, it's different. Yeah. And therefore, I put child refugees in in a slightly different group. Yes, of course. Because once people are told in this country what those young people have suffered and the terrible plight they're in, then public opinion becomes more sympathetic because they are children. You know, they're under 18, many of them under 16. They're children, they're young people, and no young people should, should should suffer in this way. And therefore, if we can do a little bit to help as a country, that is the positive side of the argument.
2: I, I, I was going to ask you <coughs> that. Now, the question I was framing in my mind was how do you retain your optimism, your faith in human nature? But I suspect that the answer to that question
3: lies in Prague in 1939 and the fact that people helped you. I think part of it is that, although I argue that the, the argument for for child refugees now yes. does not depend upon the background of the individual putting the argument. However, I'd be foolish to deny that I'm not emotionally more involved with it. No, I didn't mean
2: that. I'm more interested in where you retain your, your optimism <clears> because <throat> ah, for, for people of my generation, things are pretty horrible at the moment in the context. I've never seen posters like that Breaking Point poster before except in Joseph Goebbels documentaries. I've never seen this stuff in my lifetime. So I get very depressed at the thought that it's... But you've seen it before and you've seen Good Prevail and you've been rescued
3: yeah. the answer is yes uh, so i must deep in deep in my, deep yes. in my soul uh, th- th- there is there is some optimism based upon the fact i've been through this yes. we got our, it got better and we're, it's going to get better again so there is there is there is some of that optimism uh, yeah uh, of there course must be. but the other thing <clears throat> the other thing that keeps me going is this that working with in, in the refugee, with refugees, child refugees in, in northern France or Greece or wherever. There are some wonderful young people. There are some great NGOs, you know, Safe Passage, Help mm. Refugees, some great NGOs. And they, they have some wonderful people. Some paid little, some volunteers. And it is so inspiring to work with people who are so committed. And it's very humbling for me, inspiring and humbling, that these people are giving everything for people who are so vulnerable. And I think that's terrific. And and if I backed off, I'd be letting not just the refugees down, but also these people. And as a country, you know, the, the media describe us as a country with a lot of people, a lot of greedy bankers and all this sort of stuff. Mm. I think we've got some wonderful young people in this country. I don't want I'm patronising. No, no, I'm you humbled by, by having worked with them met them. I think they're wonderful people, and that is so inspiring, and that gives me a sense of optimism as well. And it's
2: uh, oddly, I've, it hasn't occurred mm. to me before, but it's happening in a context that's quite unreligious, often the missionary work or the idea oh. of... Yeah. Duty would, would have a religious
3: context to it, but ours seems to be quite a secular charity. Well, there's both. I of think, course. I think at the moment, uh, because I, I, I do go and speak at meetings, I get invited, so I, where, I, where I have the time to accept, I accept. And and I'm, I'm a humanist, okay? Yes. I never was religious, although my father was Jewish, yes. never religious. Um, it wouldn't have saved you from... Well, the gas no, chambers, I, I of was. Uh, as somebody said to me, "You're not Jewish at all," because it goes down the mother side. I said, "Well, the Nazi thought I was Jewish <laughs> enough," uh, uh, and this guy had the grace to say, "There's no answer to that one." <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> so, so, but I've been to I've been to lots of um, uh, synagogues. and I've spoken. you See, and um, uh, the faith communities have been very good. Yes. And there's a, there's a plaque. Uh, after Central Lobby in the House of Commons, which about just over twenty years was put up, and it says something like this: uh, "Thank you to the people of Britain on behalf of the ten thousand children who mm-hmm. came on a Kinder transport from Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. Thank you for giving us a welcome and safety." Okay, and I was there at the original ceremony, and a few months ago we decided to rededicate the plaque, and we had the Chief Rabbi and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Speaker of the Commons, right, because we just wanted to do that. So, so although. A lot of it is secular. The faith groups have been also pretty good. Of course. Uh, and, and I don't want to take away from no, the support, I, I, of the support they have given. They tolerate me, as, uh, me for being a humanist. Uh, <laughs> but, Cuckoo in the nest. But, but, uh, but uh, uh, you know, the, 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 I've talked in synagogues, I've talked in yes. churches and so on. Uh, and I, I think it's important to know that we've got the campaign on behalf of child refugees isn't religious or non-religious. No. It's both. It's not... Uh, it's not um, uh, it's not a form political party. We've deliberately stopped it being the property of one party by having it spread across, because otherwise we wouldn't win. No, of course. And and, and you kind of...
2: It's not just the, the, the politicians, is it? It's the it's the loyal party loyalists as well. If it gets perceived as a Labour issue or yeah, a Liberal right. issue we, or a Conservative we, we, issue, you turn off an awful lot of people who could help you. I, well, let's talk about that then, because... The, the passage of time and the swinging of this pendulum of public opinion is, is, is as interesting as it is dispiriting sometimes. If you had sought to bring 3,000 child refugees to this mm. country before, uh, off the top of my head, I'll pick the referendum and I'll also pick the financial crisis of 2008. Mm-hmm. My feeling is it would have been a lot easier.
3: Yes, 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 I think it would. I think... Well, I'm not sure about the financial crisis. Certainly, the refer- I think the referendum... The the, just the notion that well, how can we afford these children yeah, when we're struggling to feed? Well, that's one of the arguments that, of course, people use. Why we, you know, we, we can't even look after our own children, so why should we look after them? To me, I say, <coughs> well, frankly, the austerity that's going on at the moment yes. is, is not of my making. No. Uh, it is the government's making, and we're a rich enough country to be able to look after vulnerable refugees and look after our own people better than we're doing now.
2: We, we are. Why is that message so quiet, do you think? Is it just the, the, the nature of our newspapers that have got a business model that encourages scepticism and anger and, and, and hatred and rejection? Is it, and then that gets into the national bloodstream?
3: Well, it may be that. I don't know. I, I, think, I think there is an anti-establishment mood. But it hasn't reflected in a political analysis of of, no. of, of what you're saying. <clears throat> so I think the anti-establishment mode, which we see in America with Trump, yes, we've course. seen it in many European countries, in where where they, where they gravitate people gravitate away from the established parties uh, to other parties. We mm-hmm. had a bit of it with with, um, with UKIP, of course. And curious enough, although the Scottish. A national party is the establishment in Scotland. They've managed to act as if they weren't the establishment, and so they, yes. they, they pick up the anti-establishment vote as well. So uh, I think it's partly, partly people are fed up with the order... The, with the existing order, and, and they want to flail out in different directions, and they
2: don't need to go any further
3: than that. That's just right. just the, w- things don't have to be like this. Yeah, and then, I think that's quite a, that's quite a strong mood. And yes, it, clearly, it, it, but it doesn't lead to unless we can channel it into a more positive direction. It, it, it stays in. Well, that the period. problem is with the demagogues when you start asking them for detail, that's when they
2: just start shouting louder, that's isn't right. it? But, so, 2016, you, you bring an amendment to the Immigration right. Act to offer unaccompanied mm-hmm. refugee children safe passage to Britain as this crisis continued. And do you know, even in my notes here, I've written migrant crisis, which is part of the problem, isn't it, that you've pinpointed. We should have been calling it a refugee. You can't have a migrant crisis, <laughs> yeah. because migration is voluntary. Yeah. You can only have a crisis with refugees. Yeah. Well,
3: I think that's, that's right. What happened was that Save the Children discovered that there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe. Originally 25,000, and they upped the figure. Anyway, on the basis of the 25,000 figure, I put down an amendment which said we should take 3,000, which would be our share. Mm-hmm. I've always argued we should take our share. We, we can't take the lot, but uh, and other European countries should act equally responsibly, yes. and many don't. Uh, so we take our share, and so I put the amendment down, and um, then uh, the, the government Got a bit excited. The amendment under the immigration and the law, they got a bit excited and wanted me to withdraw the amendment. And I said, no, no, no. How does that <coughs> How do you get a message like that, Alf? How do you get the. Do you get a phone call in the, in the middle of the night or do you get a. What, telling me to withdraw yeah. the amendment? Oh, well, I know ministers would bump into me in the lobby. Right. But then I really got the message when Theresa May, who was Home Secretary, asked me to go and see her in her office in the Commons. Now, I'd met her before, and where I'd met her was at one of Nicky Winton's birthday parties, because he lived in Maidenhead, and she was his MP. And she'd come to one of his birthday parties, you know, with all the cameras on her. Because it's quite a big thing for a constituency MP to go to a 102nd or 103rd birthday party. (laughs) Of course. course. Anyway, so she asked me to go and see her in the House of Commons, and she said she'd like me to withdraw the amendment. So I said, why? (laughs) And she said, because if these kids come, more will follow. So I said, first of all, that's not... Uh, no clear hard, hard and fast evidence of that. But more importantly, we would be leaving children vulnerable, sleeping in fields, in the jungle in Calais, in the streets, anywhere, vulnerable to trafficking, prostitution, criminality. Can't let that happen. That would be right. So here's the thing, which I didn't tell too many people at the time. Uh, we, Britain did have a small scheme to take 20,000 Syrians from Jordan and Lebanon Over a five-year period, which is very few, (coughs) take 20,000 children under what we call the vulnerable person scheme. And Theresa May said to me, if you drop your amendment, I will add 3,000 to that 20,000 figure. And that that will – and there will be mainly children. Mm. And I said, that's great. We'll have that. We can do both. And she said no. It's either or. And here's the thing. It wasn't either or because that – she thought I'd accept her thing. Uh, I'd give way. I didn't give way. I said, I can't, I'm too committed, I can't possibly give way. But the 3,000 figures stayed in the system. Uh The Home Office never... A bit cocked up by the Home Office, <laughs> so I wasn't. I didn't talk about it too much at the time because I've paid it, it. So the, actually, one of the little victories I've had is this extra three thousand from the region because there are still three thousand. A lot children coming yes. to safety, and uh, and it's always been. a And uh, now I can talk about it, but at the <laughs> it's time a I, th- are complete. I thought, I thought yeah, if the Home Office, well, they're all here yet, but at least they were well in the system. Yes. So the, there's this oddity that the Vulnerable person Scheme. Well, people tell you it's twenty thousand plus three 20, 3,000. So 000. I couldn't take the any dubs, credit for that. Anyway, the three thousand. You must. So I said no. So I. I said I said no to her. Yes. Okay. I won't drop my amendment. I said I can't. Uh, not knowing she wouldn't. Just the Three thousand. Anyway, we we take our, our victories where we get them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so I went to the uh, Commons and my friends. It passed the Lords yes. very easily. Went to the Commons and my friends said, um, "Look, sit in the gallery." Uh, I used to be in the Commons, so I know this. Of course. Thing. They sit in the gallery and the one facing the Conservative benches, because we wanted some of them to. To see the you, yeah. and so I was sort of Sit up there and give them the eye. Really, and I was sitting up there giving them the eye. I don't know how you give people the eye. One <laughs> of, the speaker nodded to me, and one or two people—he's uh, good on human rights—and yes, one or two people looked at me slightly sheepishly. So I said, "They're not going to vote." Anyway, the the, the the vote came, and we just lost. One thing happened though, and it's what I call parliamentary gobbledygook. I don't know whether your your listeners are up for parliamentary gobbledygook. Let's try them. Okay, so <laughs> the Lords can't pass amendments which involved, directly involve expenditure. Right. Uh, it becomes a matter of financial privilege. The Speaker has to announce that, and normally the government just waived that because every amendment that comes from the Lords involves expenditure. But in this case, out of sheer badness, as they would say in Ireland, out of sheer badness, the government did not waive the amendment. Okay? So we lost it slightly. It mm. went. I, I bumped into Theresa main the corridor. I said, look, you won, you won today. You, know, you ain't going to win next time. Anyway, so it went back to the Lords, uh, a bigger amendment, a bigger majority, and then something very interesting happened. Public opinion began to wake up to this. It began to kick in. Me- I got messages uh, saying, "Keep on with the amendment. We support you." Local groups were being set up to welcome refugees, especially refugee children. It was phenomenal. I got a few. Uh, of course, I got yes. a few, and I didn't say all British public opinion supported it. No, of course. Uh, but it was a majority. It was absolutely phenomenal. It was. Wonderful! It was hard heartwarming. You could feel it, with the yeah, wind in your you sails. Could feel it. People shouted at me in the street. Normally when they shout in the street, they shout abusive politicians. <laughs> no, they said, keep going with the amendment. So, so, And so Theresa May summoned me in again. And this time she said, we propose to accept your amendment, knowing that we're going to lose the vote.
2: Yes. And, and and also it was all about the optics for her. Yeah, it was well, all about the politics. That's right. That's I, right. I, I don't want to encourage you to, to, to be rude. Um, and I'm sure you wouldn't be. But... You must have been tempted to remind Theresa May either of her Christianity, to refer to the religious we discussed, her, her vicar huh? father, or the circumstances
3: in which you'd first made her acquaintance—that you were in Sir Nicholas Winton's. Well, well you see, on the on home. the on the religious point, I didn't want to do that because no, I'm a humanist. Of course, I did not want to do course. that. Uh, on the second point, I think she was—I think she was um, quite well aware of it, because I, uh, when Nicky Winton had a memorial. Thing at the Guildhall in London, and I was talking to his daughter, who was organising it, wonderful Barbara. Barbara Winton, and she asked me about having government speaker, and I said, "Have Theresa May," and she said, "Really?" But with her policy, I said, "Just," and she made a great speech on the basis of which I had given Theresa May a Labour Party membership card on the spot. Anyway, she's good at that. And so, when she became prime minister, I wrote to her and reminded her of the speech she'd made at Nicky Winton's memorial. You see, so yes. so I think she knew she knew yes. all this, so and she, she knew of my background and, and I didn't want to let her forget it. and one of the reasons for having a speak at that th- speak was that she had to make a more sympathetic speech, and I thought that would lock her in a bit more than it didn't work very well, but it was an attempt. and th- again, that
2: pendulum of public opinion, which you've described beautifully swinging mm-hmm. towards you, then began to swing away, partly, I suspect, because of the photographs of of young men who appeared to be older. well, which feeds into an appetite. People want to be sceptical or, yeah. or callous. You, you can't create callousness. Yeah, that sh-
3: was, for, none of those were children that, covered, that, that, that were subject to my amendment anyway. It doesn't matter, though, no, does it? A, no. And sense, also, the... as, I, as I said in defence, uh, when you've travelled half-round the world, you've gone through terrible experiences, maybe that ages you as well. Yes. But it was, in public relations terms, it was not at all helpful. No. Particularly as my mission, mission of those of us on the camp, has been to keep public opinion on side as much as possible.
2: And 12 months ago, perhaps as a result of that change in Mood, um, they sort of
3: quietly abandoned the scheme after picking up just 350 of the 3,000 children they should have. Well, well, first of all, the three, what happened was that after she accepted the amendment, the immigration minister at the time phoned me up and said, the government proposed to accept the letter and the spirit of the amendment. Right. It's my contention they've done no such thing. No. However, the government decided to cap my scheme because they said local authorities cannot find any more foster places. And eventually it became 480. They made a mistake, 480. And we challenged this. It's been challenged in the courts where it's still going on appeal. Uh, We challenged it politically because we said we know of enough local authorities who are willing to provide more foster places. Not all, but enough to to say the policy shouldn't be kept at that arbitrary figure. But it remains to be seen whether any progress will be made. Well, we are looking at ways in which we can, um, in future legislation, we can put an amendment down. But I can say there is a, slightly, a slightly, uh, slightly more encouraging bit to it. There is also a European treaty, a Dublin treaty, under the provisions of which which we call Dublin three, Children who've got, who are in an EU country who have got family in another one Yes, can join them. So a Syrian boy in Paris could join an uncle in Stockholm. Okay, and these children were also uh, in the in in the jungle in Calais and in 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 the camps. And the NGOs were working with both lots. Very few of those Dublin three children had come to Britain. Right. The result of my amendment is the campaign took on both lots, and we've had about eight hundred of the Dublin three children over so far, and about two hundred and fifty of the the ones yes. under, my, under my amendment. So the family reunifications plus the 200. And, and we're trying to... Yes, it's about 1,000. And we're trying to keep the provisions of the Dublin Treaty in existence after we leave the EU. And I've got an amendment down, which will be debated in the Lords, I think, the week after next, exactly to achieve that. Watch this space. Um, you've been to...
2: The, the, the so-called jungle in Calais. You've been to Lesbos as well, I think. No, I haven't. I've been haven't.
3: To, uh, I'm going to Lesbos in in uh, in May, I think. Uh, I've been to uh, camps in, in in Greece, in Thessaloniki and near Athens. Yes. And I've been to Calais three times. Briefly, what do you find when you go there? Uh, 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 I think in Calais, the first two times, the jungle was still there, and then the third time, it's been all cleared. Well, what I found was... Appalling conditions that children and adults should live live like that. But in, in in northern France, there was also what I call the triumph of the human spirit. There was still a sense of hope. Mm. Even if they had to cross the channel illegally on the back of a truck, uh, uh, there was still a sense of hope, which I didn't see in the camps in Greece so much, where they seemed to be unable to escape from so, so easily. Uh, but certainly... Uh, I also found the French authorities had cleared half the camp, and in the middle of the jungle there was a shopping street. I mean, tremendously yes. resilient. They have got the shopping street there. And there was little cafes and things. And, um, uh, and like they all, shanty towns, aren't they? Yeah, in yeah. A way? yeah. Uh, And and, and in, in on display they had tear gas canisters and rubber bullets. And I said, "What are they for?" And they said, "When the French authorities, the previous French government, tried to clear half the camp." Uh, they used them. I said, but these people are refugees. How can you do that? Well, they said, the National Front are very strong in this part of France. So the French government felt they had to act like the National Front. And I said, but you don't defeat the National Front by acting like them. So I was quite shocked by that, yes. to use tear gas and rubber bullets on refugees. Anyway, I found there was a very positive spirit, despite the awfulness of it. A, I came back with conflicting emotions. Of course. The third time I went, the jungle had been totally cleared. We'd made desperate efforts to persuade the government to bring children yes. over and there, there was still a, a clothes bank and a food kitchen there but there was no accommodation and and it was all and I, I shuddered. I went just before the cold weather set in really uh, and I think I shudder to think what it's like sleeping under the trees in this bitterly cold weather and and, and you think more of the children than of the adults inevitably well, well I look I think of them because because I think under the under either the W3 yes. treaty or, or my amendment you know we should be taking them the adults... Well, why don't is, you get... We're, near, we're
2: nearly out of time, so I'll, I'll ask you a slightly impertinent
3: question, if I may. Why, why don't you get angrier? I don't... I, don't, I don't, I'm trying to be good-natured for your programme. Well, that's, that's, clearly, <laughs> yeah, you are, by nature, a very, yeah. look, very good look, man. Look, 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 i tell you what it is. I vary between feeling tearful yes. and feeling very angry. OK. And I am angry. Uh, uh, but you don't get much done by being angry, I don't think so. I think, I think we've got to be clever. We've got to go for public opinion. We've got to outsmart the government. And we've got to... Look, President Macron, one good news, President Macron met Theresa May. And the outcome was they were going to speed up the process of getting That's kids right, over. Yes. And I said, it takes something for the French president to, speed to persuade over. to persuade our prime minister to do things which the British parliament is not able to persuade it to do. Mm. So thank you, President Macron, well for, what, for, for what it's worth. Uh, and so... I cheer up a bit then. Right. And I shall cheer up if we get some of these amendments through. So one has to keep optimistic. Let's end where we began with that television programme, which
2: introduced me to the notion of kinder transport. I'd just briefly love to know what it was like for people who haven't seen it. It's all over YouTube and, and, and what have you. Sir Nicholas Winton hadn't told his own family about the
3: work that he'd done during the war. It, it emerged, I think, when a family member was going through boxes in attics. Uh, that's right. He'd been a very modest man. Actually, he stood as a Labour candidate for Maidenhead District Council in 1954-55, uh, as shown in his daughter's Book okay. and he'd written. He'd written there that he'd helped refugees right. to come to Britain. But nobody picked it up. and So it was only picked up when they found the papers in his attic. He was a very modest man. It's an astonishing level of uh, modesty. That's a uh, self-effacing almost to the point of incredulity. Absolutely. But nevertheless, what a man. And so there have been several television programmes. There was This Is Your Life. All but, these the, but the This Is Your Life one was the best because you're in the room. He's there. And presumably his wife's
2: had to sort of tell him some various concoctions to get him to go to watch this television programme. He doesn't know. And then we're all there. We stand up and che- <laughs> there, there were, How many of you were there that day? I don't, I don't know. I don't Over a hundred of yeah, you, I no. think. And you were all children that he had personally <laughs> that's saved that's right, that's right. That's a- in an operation that he hadn't told his own family about until latterly in life. And then... Yeah, Esther right. and the presenter, invited all of you former children yeah, to stand up, and he, he did he's one of
3: the most powerful things I've yeah, ever well, seen on I, a screen. I, I, think, I think that's right. Uh, and I think he was totally bowled over. But, you know, he's also been bowled over on other occasions. I know, you know yes, rather, of course. Uh, and it's just that we've had reunions, we've had surprise events when he's come along. And, you know, it's just that we feel. There's a bonding between those of us that came on uh, through, through, his, through his trains, through his kinder transport. We're bonded and we sort of have a fellow feeling. We're getting older. As I was one of the youngest, it's, 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 going, it's going, you know, there won't be many of us left soon. But we have this bonding feeling and we feel very affectionately towards him as we would. He saved our lives. And, and I think he's, he's got a sense of quiet pride that we and our children and our grandchildren all owe their existence to him. Indeed, they do. Alf Dubs, thank you so much. Thank you.
2: I'm joined now by Rich Cooper, the producer of Unfiltered, for our customary um, (coughs) post-match chat. And I I, I think I can say that 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 lived up to my hopes. What were your hopes? My hopes were that I'd get the chance to understand his story properly. Actually, no, I knew his story, to share his story properly, while also reflecting on the parallels between his experience in the late 30s and and afterwards, and some of the very troubling shifts in the the tectonic plates of Western politics at the moment. Yeah, you're right, and I think that's what we've got. Um, Troubling's the word. You'd think that when you hear stories like Alf's, you think we might have moved on a bit, or not moved on, like we've gone backwards. We'd never ever do anything like that again. We'd never let those political genies out of the bottle again, but it it does, and it was reassuring to hear him agree um, that that, that the parallels are, are clear. And and troubling, but he was also lovely. I mean, yeah. You, know, you asked what my hopes were. I also hoped he wouldn't think I was a twat. Rich. To be no, honest. I'll, <laughs> uh, I'll I'll tell you now. He was very complimentary about you on the Cause way cause out. Occasionally, you meet people and you just feel a little bit unworthy. Right. But not, not in the uh, way I did with Eric Cantona. <laughs> that's a completely different <laughs> Yeah, I imagine
0: that's the same for anyone. <laughs> Eric Cantona never changes. But but
2: but what, what a lovely, lovely, lovely man. He was a lovely fella. Still batting as well. He's still pending my ear afterwards about that amendment that he's, he's got coming up in a couple of weeks and yeah. the coverage that I'll be able to help him. And I think that's the mark of a really inspiring person is their dedication and willingness to see something through to the absolute end. I don't think he could be other do you? I don't think he could be any other than that I think it's so much part of who he is that that the work is, 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 the join between the man and the work is invisible
1: yeah, not a question
2: for, for reasons that became pretty clear pretty quickly in that interview. Yeah. Have you ever seen that clip of that's live? I have, yeah. But I saw it a while ago before I sort of knew who he was. And then as you were saying that, I was like, Oh yeah, it is, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how many people who've just finished listening or watching this <sighs> up, up on but, YouTube and have a look. I'm now going to Google it and get it, get it stuck up. On yeah, YouTube definitely. Before you do that, please remember to subscribe to Unfiltered if you have enjoyed it at your usual podcast provider. And we also really do value ratings and reviews. Many thanks.
0: You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.